The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. You guys know the, uh, the Winter Olympics just finished, just wrapped up not too long ago, like a week ago today, right? Um, it's that, uh, that weird event for Americans that happens every four years where all of a sudden we watch uh, events on ice and on snow. We watch skiing and we watch people skating on ice, uh, some of them going fast and some of them doing like little twirls and uh, landing. And uh, we, got, we got to get all pumped about it all of a sudden. I don't know that any other time we can name a skier or a skater or uh, a curler. Maybe you still can't name a curler, but you guys know, have you seen the curling thing? I, don't, I find myself, like, I make fun of it, but then I find myself watching because I go, wow, that's kind of interesting. It's like a giant shuffleboard on ice, and uh, they, they really get into it. And you hear them, like, yelling, and you've seen, like, the costumes they wore. Like, some of them really brought it. There's, like, all kinds of crazy, like, stars and stripes and, hmm? The co- a costume that Miss Canada, Miss Canada speaks up and informs us they're not costumes. <laughs> She's from Canada, and her mom's from Scotland, so you can kind of figure out where she's coming from, those things. (laughs) But it's kind of interesting, though, that we get all excited about it, and we watch it, and we get really pumped up about it. Some of us do. Maybe some of us don't. My sisters, I don't know if you had a conversation with them in the prior two and a half, three weeks. They get really crazy about any Olympics, any Olympics whatsoever. The Winter Olympics, I, I, I didn't ever even ask them how they got these, but during the Winter Olympics, they wore like lapel pins for, so, for the Sochi Olympics. I'm like, and, and I thought about it after, because I just took for granted, like my sisters are crazy about uh, about the Olympics, uh, Anna, who's serving back in the back, she unfollowed me on Twitter because I had the setting on my Twitter deal where if Americans won a gold, it would automatically tweet about it, like celebrate it. And she didn't want to know what was happening because she was watching it at night on time delay. And so she unfollowed me on Twitter and said, I'm not going to follow you again until the Olympics are over. And I didn't understand, like, where do my sisters even get lapel, where do you get lapel pins in South Carolina for Winter Olympics? I don't know where that happened, but they were all excited about it because there's something fascinating about the Olympics, right? Because we see these athletes, even if it's a sport like bobsledding or figure skating or curling that we never watch any other time, but there's something fascinating about watching an athlete who has spent the last four years of their lives for this one moment. They may never get another crack at it. In fact, some of them, they haven't spent the last four years of their life pouring into it. They've spent their entire lives poured into this one moment, and it goes so fast. I think, I mean, that's what lends the drama to it, isn't it? I mean, you hear the stories of some of these these kids. They're like, they're kids. They're teenagers, and they're getting up every morning at 4.30 in the morning and they're out of the track or they're out the rink and they're doing the deal, they're working out and it's all for this one, I'm gonna go, if I can make it, I'm gonna go to Sochi and I'm gonna compete in these Olympics. This one moment, I had this one shot. At this point, I want to sing uh, the Whitney Houston song, One Moment in Time. Anybody old enough to remember that? (laughs) Give me one moment in time. It's just like, oh yes, this is it, this is the moment, this is it. 
it's all come to here, this, this one moment, because they want to taste. These athletes, they'll get up in the morning, they'll give up their teenage years for this one taste of glory. Because you see that look on their face when they get to the bottom of the hill, or they look up at the, at the clock when they finish racing around the rink, and they see they had the best time, or the judges come back and give them the score, and they realize, like, they won. The, all of a sudden, years and years of exercise, years and years of training, hours and hours of giving up on dating and having a normal teenage life, all of a sudden is all worth it for that one taste of glory. That one little taste is worth it. And then when they interview them, what's the, what's the first thing they say? That they celebrate like the fact that it's happened, and then they're like, this, this has got to happen again. Have you ever heard an interview with an NFL player after the Super Bowl or somebody after a World Series? Like for a, they're, they're, they're celebrating, and the very next thing, they're standing on the stand, they're handing them the championship trophy, and the next thing they say is, next year, we're going to do this again. Why? Because glory, tasting, a taste of glory makes you hungry for more. Uh, uh, somebody asked me last night, um, and they're very nice about it because, because we're, we're the small church with the weird name, and we're going to own that. We're, we're Doxa Church. It's a small church with a weird name. And somebody asked you last night, uh, so why'd you pick that name? You know, did somebody force you to do that? Did you draw, you know, did you draw the, the shortest straw? And it is a weird name, and I will own that. But I just had to share, like, the reason that, we picked the name doxas because doxa is a Greek word for glory or glorious. And here's what the word glory means. High renown or honor won by notable achievements. High renown or honor won by notable achievements. So what we're talking about when that athlete has poured their whole life, hours and hours, years and years. Nobody cares about bobsledding any other time of the year in America. Nobody cares about short track figure skating or I mean, short track speed skating or figure skating really the rest of the year, except for that one moment. The whole world is watching and they taste the glory. It's worth it for that one moment of high renown or honor. Or it could mean magnificence, great beauty, a thing that is beautiful or distinctive, a, a special cause for pride, respect, the splendor or bliss. When you taste that little bit of glory, you want more. And, and my life was revolutionized and turned upside down when, when one day the penny dropped in me when I realized that God created me to, to enjoy, to behold, to experience, and to live for his glory. The fact that God is above all splendiferous. He is marvelous. He is, no, no, I made up that word. You can recognize. He is amazing. He is beautiful. He is glorious. He is above all. And when you see him, when you get a taste of him, it turns your life upside down like that, like that figure skater who finished and they see the score is the higher so that guy that gets to the bottom of the, 
of the luge or the skeleton. Have you seen that? Like they said, how, how can we make going down an icy hill even more dangerous? Let's go put somebody on a sled headfirst and have them go 70 miles an hour down an icy hill. But when he gets to the bottom and he looks up and he has the best time, it is glorious. It is amazing. It is worth all the sacrifice, all the loss that he put in for months and months and years and years. And that's what this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is really about. It's about the glory of God breaking through in the middle of our mundane, and all of a sudden we get a taste for what we were created for. You could turn in your book to in your book, your Bible to Mark chapter nine. We've been uh, going through the book of Mark. We've been talking about how Jesus is a a man worth following, a king worth serving, and a God worth worshiping. He's a he's a man you can follow, a king you can serve, and a God you can worship. And last week we talked about this this. Uh, sort of interchange that he had with his disciples. They were walking down the path, going to this village, and he asked them a question. He said, uh, who do people say that I am? Because people, he, would come on, he was a big deal. He'd come on the, the scene. He was healing a bunch of people. A lot of crazy things were happening. People were following him. He was feeding crowds of people from like one little boy's lunch, uh, five loaves and two fish. It was amazing things that were going on. They had food left over. It was crazy. He was, a, he was an internet phenomenon. Everybody was tweeting about him. People were following him. He had road groupies that were, that were around him all the time, seeing where he was going because, hey, you, you hang around him, you get healed, you get a free lunch. That's a pretty cool gig. And so everybody's following him, but they, they hadn't really quite figured out who he was. And so he asked his disciples, hey, who do people say I am? And they said, well, there's some crazy ideas about there. Some people think you might be Elijah, come back from the dead. He was a great prophet in the Old Testament. Some people think you might be John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He was a, a great prophet that was just around not long ago, your cousin who got beheaded. And Jesus said, well, but who do you say I am? And they were kind of stumped for a minute, and then Peter responded, and he said, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Which is a pretty amazing thing to say to somebody, isn't it? To say to another human being, like, oh, you're a cool guy, but no, he didn't say, like, you're a cool guy, you're a great teacher. He said, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And so that was like, that's absolutely true. And then Jesus turned around and every, instead of what the disciples that were following him expected him to say is like, you're right, I am the son of God and I've come to be the king and I'm going to set up a kingdom right here in Israel and we're going to overthrow Rome. He turned around and he said to them, and he, you're right, I'm the son of the living God and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go suffer and I'm going to die. Which is a totally, totally unexpected response for them to hear. And Peter, in fact, he got so irritated about that, he said, it says that he rebuked Jesus and said, can you imagine rebuking? You just said you're the son of the living God, and then you turn around and say, Jesus. And it's very strong language rebuking. I mean, he, he pulled him aside. Where I come from, you would say he cussed him out, he, uh, he reamed him out, he, uh, you know, dug him a new one, you know, whatever kind of phraseology that you, we might use where I come from. He let him have like, no, that is not the deal. You are the king. You're coming. You're not coming to suffer. You're coming to rule over this area. And so Jesus turned around and rebuked him back. And then he called all of his disciples together. And he said, 
here's the deal. If you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself, and come follow me. Because my way is not the way of uh, power. My way is not, we're not going to take up arms. We're not going to take up bazookas. We're not going to start a little, a little militia here and overthrow the government. My way to establish the new kingdom that I've come to establish is through suffering, it's through service, through giving my life. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me to that. And so then we start out this, this passage we're looking at in Mark 9, verse 2. And after six days, that's six days after this account that we were just talking about, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, that means teacher, it is good that we are here. Peter, always ready to speak up. Rabbi, teacher, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is what it said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. See, the, the question that we're asking that, Peter, that Jesus is really addressing here in this, in this section is, if Jesus comes to you, just as he came to his disciples that were following him at the time, and said, if you want to come follow me, then you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The question really is, why should I, why should you be willing to suffer? Why should you be willing to follow Jesus and deny yourself if it's going to cost you? That's really the question that we should be asking. Why should I be willing to follow Jesus if it's going to cost me? If I'm going to have to deny myself in order to follow him, why should I do that? Whenever he, like, six days later, he grabs Peter, James, and John. That was his boys. He had 12 apostles, Peter, James, and John. That was his boys. He said, you guys come up here with me. And he would, he would pull them aside in order to pray. And so they were just going up. He would go up to a, a mountain or a, a quiet place in order to pray at night. And so he called them up with him or during the day, whenever. He'd pull, pull them up and said, hey, come, come pray with me. They go up to pray together. When they do, it's just a normal everyday thing, like gathering on Sunday morning at church or gathering with your community group on Wednesday night or hanging out with some people during the week. And you just get together, you're going to pray. And then the next thing they see, they look at Jesus, and it says that he transfigured before them. He was transfigured. Figured before them. That, the wording there the, is uh, the word that we get uh, metamorphosis from. It means that he, he, 
he transformed in front of them. But it's not so much that he became a different person so much as what happens here is he's standing in front of his, his, his boys and they're praying as all of a sudden the veil is pulled back and they see Jesus for as he really is. He, he's not just a man who comes out and hangs with them and eats with them and Jesus had to, look, Jesus was a man. He had to eat. He had to go use the bathroom. He had to, he got hungry. He got tired. But all of a sudden, they hang out with him. They're praying. And the veil gets pulled away. And they see Jesus as he really is. The glory of who he is breaks through. See, the idea of the word glory when we talk about God is one of those kind of church words that sometimes we use and we don't even know what it means. But the, the idea of the word glory is that that's when God goes public with his beauty. It's when God goes public with his amazing perfections. Have you ever um, seen one of those movies or TV shows where uh, it's usually like one of the, the girls, she kind of hangs out with the guys, and she's kind of the, the guys kind of view her as one of the guys. And then like, they have like an event that they go to, and she uh, fixes her hair and puts on her makeup and puts on something nicer. And then it's like she comes around the corner, and the guys see her, and they're like, who is that? And they realize like that's their friend. Like all of a sudden, like, wow, where did you come from? Like, you're a woman. You're like, you're, a, you're beautiful. Like, like, you ever seen like one of those shows in TV? Maybe you experienced that like with, uh, you know, somebody you, you saw and all of a sudden like they had the, maybe your wife or your girlfriend, like they're, they're pretty, but all of a sudden like you're going to go out somewhere nice and they, they spend all that time doing whatever they mysteriously do in the bathroom and in their room. And you're like, what is going on? Are they sacrificing a pig? Is there, is there something, what mysteriously is going on? And then she comes around the corner and you're like, it's all worth it. The, the way is worth it. You see, you're like, whoa, that's amazing. That's beautiful. That's kind of what happens here with Jesus, except instead of putting makeup on and getting his hair done, and that sounds weird, and, 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 and getting dolled up, instead of that, he's... He's pulling back the curtain for a second, showing them who he really is. And when they see him, it's draw-droppingly beautiful. It, we, we lack words to really describe what they saw. They said that it was bright. His clothes became radiant, intensely white. And then like, the, he, he, like Mark pulls out, like, no one on earth could bleach them. It's kind of a, you know... Like he had a bad experience with the laundry one day. And, 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 but he's saying like, he's trying to describe, he's grasping at what they saw when they saw him. It, he, he was, it was shining, it was bright, it was radiant. His eyes were like, his, his clothes were dazzling. They could hardly look at him. For a second, he pulled back the curtain, he showed them who he really was. And then like to try to kind of top that off, not only is all of a sudden is he not there by himself, but Elijah and Moses, two of the greatest men in the history of Israel, are hanging out with him. By the way, they weren't alive. They came down from heaven and visited with him, and it says they were talking. And when Matthew or Luke talks about this, rather, this account, he says they were talking about his death, how he was going to go die on the cross for us. 
See, uh, in Scripture, we get a few glimpses of the mundane is going on, and all of a sudden, God shows up. And almost every time he shows up, whether it's Moses with the burning bush, you guys have seen the movie, he's out with the, with the, with the sheep and the goats and whatever out in the wilderness, and he sees a, a bush, bush burning, and he, he goes up, and the bush is burning, but it's not burning up, and God speaks to him, and all of a sudden, he's like going to, he's going to like, he's going to mess his pants, like things are, like, because, because whenever you come face to face with the glory and the beauty the dazzling amazingness of who God is, it absolutely takes your breath away. Have you ever seen something so amazing that it kind of takes your breath away a little bit? Have you ever been out in the middle of the ocean and you look around and you just get a, a feel for how giant the ocean is and how small you are? Have you ever been standing out in a storm uh, and all of a sudden a, a thunderstorm comes up and it's, the lightning is flashing and the thunder is booming around you all of a sudden and all of a sudden you realize like I might have thought I was a big deal but I'm not a very big deal? I, I told you guys before I kind of got struck by lightning before I, I, it came up like I was, we were hanging out back and I was leaning up against the house and the storm came up really fast and we were grilling and one of us, like a couple of guys were outside and one of us said like, we should probably go inside and then immediately after that, the lightning hit right on top of us, hit the house, hit a tree uh, right beside us and I felt, I was leaning against the house and I felt <clears throat> the electricity come up through the house, come up through my knuckle, through my arm, through my head and come out the top of my head. The guys around me said they felt it like come, like the electricity come off me onto them. I probably, I may have screamed like a girl at that moment. <laughs> I'm afraid of heights. If I go on the side of a mountain and I look down, one of those precipices, like you're supposed to like pull off to the side and like enjoy the view and take pictures. Like when I stand on the side and I'm kind of walking carefully up to the side like this and I'm looking over, I'm overwhelmed. My stomach is kind of doing crazy things. When you see the glory of God, it's that times a million, gabillion, zillion. When Moses meets him, when Joshua meets him, when Isaiah has a vision and he meets him, when John sees him in the, the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, almost every case when somebody sees God, sees a, he, he breaks through the mundane and he shows them just a glimpse of his glory, it's almost every single account, they fall down, they're afraid, and they worship. Because when you see him for who he is, it captures your attention. There's no ignoring it. When God comes up and shows who he is, it reorients, it reorients your life. Almost every one of those accounts when God comes up and shows himself, people fall down, they're afraid, they worship, 
and then they obey. Because when you see him for who he is, there's no pretending that you're the boss of your own life anymore. There's no pretending that you're the king. There's no pretending that you're a big deal anymore. Because the true big deal, the true big dog has shown up and your whole life is reoriented from there. The dominoes fall from there and you realize what I thought life was about, it is not about that anymore. It is about him. I owe him my life. I owe him my worship. I owe him my obedience. I owe him everything I have. And not only do I owe him that, but like when you when you see those athletes and they taste that glimpse of glory, they, they finish first, they stand on the top step, they get handed the gold medal, and they taste and experience the glory, they get handed the trophy, they win the World Series, even, even God bless them, the ones that play soccer and win the World Cup, bless their hearts, when, when, they, when they do that, that all of a sudden it's even worth, it's even worth playing soccer in order to experience the taste, a little taste of the glory. Because when you taste it, all of a sudden the cost, what it costs you to taste it, doesn't seem very much anymore. My wife was in such incredible pain in labor with my daughter. I didn't know what to do. I felt guilty because she's sitting on this, this uh, whatever it is, the birthing bed, and she's like, she's, she's in pain She's like rolling all around. At one point, she's curled up in a ball. She's complaining about her back. We're, we're like, my, my mom was in there, and I was in there, and we're trying to coach her, and I'm getting tired. Like, I'm getting tired just trying to coach her, and then I feel guilty because I'm getting tired. I'm like, I need to sit down for a minute. I'm like, but she's the one. She's got all this stuff going on. Like, it was incredible. I'm like, this is terrible. Somebody stop this somehow. <laughs> Moments. Literal moments after it was over, she was smiling because she had the baby in her arms. And all of a sudden, all that pain and all that hurt and all that effort, all those nine months of being uncomfortable, all of a sudden, she like the last couple of months, like she slept like sitting up in the bed because she had heartburn. It was so bad. All of a sudden, it was all worth it. It faded away in a little bit of tasting of that glory. And if following Christ and being a believer feels like a chore and feels like, like it's hard for you like to not do certain things and to do certain things, to wake up in the morning and read the Bible and to pray and to come to church on Sunday morning and you know, when it is an effort to kind of get the kids out or me get out of bed and it's a nice day and I'd rather be at the park or at the beach, quite honestly, or uh, go to a community group or uh, whatever it is for you. If it's hard, if it's an effort, if it's a chore, if it's a bore, if it's a bother, the reason is usually because we've lost that taste of the glory and the beauty and the magnificence. When, when God had the Israelites and he led them out of Egypt, again, you guys seen the movie, 
he sends Moses back to Egypt, and they get the Israelites, and he leads them into the wilderness. And when he, when he gets there, God gives them some rules and some laws, uh, but he also tells them, I want you to make a tent for me. And so he tells them exactly how to make it, and this is how you put it up, and then when it's time to take it down, um, you take it down, and unlike normal men, they actually read the instructions and did what God said to do. Because when God gives you instructions, it's different than just the tent instructions that are in the box. I'm going to try to figure it out. It's God gave you instructions on how to set the tent up and take it down and how you carry it. And something amazing happened when they set up the tent. God told them, this is going to be my house with you guys. This is going to be my tent. You guys are dwelling in tents in the wilderness and you guys break them down when it's time to move and you move on. This is going to be where I live with you guys. And when they set up the tent, it says that his glory or his, in the Old Testament, you might see the word Shekinah, his presence, his glory, comes down and dwells in the tent in the middle of his people. And it was an amazing thing because for the first time ever, God is dwelling with his people. But here's the problem, is that even though it's a tent he's in with his people, it's contained inside that tent. Because the problem was they were sinful and they were separated from God. And for, for a sinful man to be in the unmitigated presence of God and his glory and his amazingness, it was so amazing, it would just, they would just kind of... You couldn't stand it. So there was a wall that was separating them from God. But when, when, when Peter tells Jesus, like, so here's what we should do. Like, I should put up some tents here. Like, it's kind of a weird, like, response to, to this whole thing. Like, we see Jesus. He shows his glory. He's hanging out with Elijah and Moses. And the response is, hey, um, you guys should camp. It seems like a weird response to us, but what he's saying is, hey, this is happening again. Like, your presence is here. This is amazing. Let's create three new tents, and you can, you can chill out here with us in your presence, your magnificent glory. You can hang out here. But that wasn't what Jesus had in mind. Because Jesus was done with showing people intermittent pictures of his glory. A burning bush here, a messenger there, amazing encounter in the, the middle of the desert here. He was done with that. He wanted to show his people his glory and to be with them so they could taste it and behold it. And so when John, in the, in the Gospel of John, whenever he explains why Jesus came, it says that the word, he's talking about Jesus there, the word came and he lived among us. That word lived is the same word of he came and he set up his tent with us. That tent in the middle of the wilderness with the, with the um, Israelites, they called it the tabernacle. And so the wording there is he came and he tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of as of the only Son of God. Jesus came to show us the glory of God. And so whenever he goes to Jerusalem later on, what we're going to see in a little while, in a few, in a few weeks from now, whenever he ends up going to Jerusalem and he suffers at the hands of the Jewish leaders, 
and the Roman centurions. And he's beaten, and he's nailed to a cross. He suffers and he dies. A spear is pushed into his side. And then he's taken down from the cross and he's put into the grave for three days. And then he rises again on the third day. Whenever he's on the cross and he dies, over in the temple, which is now the permanent place, it's not a tent anymore, it's a big, giant, amazing building, there's a curtain that separates what's called the most holy of holies from the rest of the temple. And that giant curtain, it was a thick, thick old curtain, not just like, like a kind of drape that you might have in your house. It was a hugely, thickly woven curtain. Also, when he dies, the veil, that's what it's called, the curtain, is split from the top to the bottom to signify that God now dwells with his people. He has come to dwell with us. Jesus came, not so that we have little intermittent pictures like they have here of the glory of God, but to show us who God is, that we can display and behold his beauty. There's two aspects of that beauty. One is that God is the God who created the entire universe. Do you know our sun, as huge as it is, like it would, it would consume the earth if somehow you could push it into the sun, as huge as it is. I mean, it's the Mac Daddy. It is the big boss on the neighborhood and the solar system. It pales in comparison to other stars that are out there. It's a little baby star compared to those. And there are thousands and millions and millions of stars almost without count throughout the whole universe. And the universe is ever expanding. We can't get our head around that. The universe is ever expanding. He created all that. You ever been to the Rockies? You ever looked up at, the, at them from the, from, the, from the base or sat on the top of one of them and looked over the edge at some precipice? He created that. That was no big deal for him. The fact that the sun rises in the morning or the fact that we're rotating around the sun and that the earth is at the perfect tilt that it has to be in order to sustain the type of life we have is just the right distance from the sun. He's holding all that together and keeping it going at all any given time. He's the God who is at any given moment, he is everywhere all at the same time. He is omnipresent. All, he is everywhere, all at the same time, without exerting any effort. God is omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. That means at any given moment, he knows where every single molecule in the universe is. He has an account of it. The Bible says that he knows every hair on your, that is on your head. As a child, I heard that verse, and I was like, why would he care about that? I don't understand. Like, I didn't understand. Like, what's the connection? The idea is it is... The numbers of hairs on your head, the number of cells in your body are always changing. You're dropping hairs, you're dropping skin cells right now. That's disgusting, isn't it? Like our whole body is like, what is it, recycled every six or seven years. You know, the old cells are gone. He knows at every given moment what is going on with that without exerting any effort. 
I know some people that are really smart, but they can only think about like one thing at a time. He's thinking about it all at one, at one time without exerting any amount of effort. At any given time, he's keeping the, the stars in their place. He is, he, is, he is making sure that the sparrows have food, that the whales that are underneath the ocean, are, everything's going well there. He is looking over you in every intimate detail of your life, all without exerting any effort, any energy. That's the God who came in the form of the flesh as Jesus Christ. It's a man. That is a man you can follow. That is a king that you can serve, and that is a God you can worship. But not only is he that God who is amazing and, and, and awe-inspiring in his magnificence and in his grandeur, but a whole other area of God's glory that Jesus came and displayed to us is the fact that he came as a suffering servant. When you and I were, were up the creek without a paddle, we had no hope, separated from God, by nature a sinner, separated from God, had no claim on him, didn't want anything to do with him by our nature. We are totally away from him. When we, were, when we were his enemies, when we were sinners, he came as a man. That amazing God came as a limited man, lived the life of a poor peasant in order to suffer and to die in order to pay the debt that you and I could not pay. That adds a whole other element to it, doesn't it? Not only is he the God who numbers the stars, right now he knows exactly how many fish are in the ocean and where they are at any given moment and where they're going to be 10 minutes from now without effort. Not only is he that, he's the God who came as a servant to suffer for your sake, for my sake. Jesus came to display the glory, the beauty, the magnificence of God. And whenever you taste that, when you behold him, everything else pales in comparison. When he says, and when you see him like that, and he says, if you want to follow me, you have to give up your rights. You have to understand that I'm the Lord, I'm the king, and what I say goes. You have to follow me as, as, as one who is following a king, as a servant who is following a king. Whatever it may cost you, all of a sudden isn't all that important. If you're here this morning and maybe you're not a Christian, what, what you need to see this morning is you need to see the amazing glory of God that is shown to us in Jesus Christ in his very nature and in his sacrifice for you. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer, what you need to do is like an athlete who wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and I know I've got to go train and I don't want to do it and it's cold outside. I'd rather sleep in 15 more minutes. You have to remember the prize. 
And if you remember it, all of a sudden it doesn't seem like a sacrifice anymore. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.